podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. A few months ago when we published an episode about Estonian e-residency, listener Chris Mitchell jumped into the comments and asked me if I'd be willing to share my story about how I got my Spanish residency. And he mentioned that hearing stories from people who have been through the process is invaluable. And I really thought that was a good idea. So I actually opened up the DC and started poking around and started calling people that had been through some kind of permanent residency or residency process in Europe. And, you know, it wasn't all nuts and bolts. What came about through these series of interviews was really fascinating. And although this episode is just about Spain and Portugal, I think at the core of every location-independent story, there's that fundamental question, which is, if I can live anywhere, you know, where am I going to live? Where am I going to call home? And these sorts of questions can really be further complicated, and I'll be sharing this in in my particular story, is if you've met someone and you want to live with someone that has a different passport than you. In my case, one of us has a passport from the Philippines, and one of us has a passport from America, and we don't really want to live in either of those two places. So a little bit about that story on today's show. So as many of you know, I'm currently living in the beautiful city of Barcelona, And I had Bossman on the show to interview me about that, which is a somewhat strange and unsettling experience. (laughs) And we've also spliced my perspective of moving and getting permanent residency in Spain with the perspective of Shannon Weeks, who's a naturopathic doctor and who's been doing a ton to spread the word about the opportunities in Portugal for his fellow entrepreneurs. So we're going to go back and forth a little bit between Spain and Portugal and share our thoughts on visas, taxes, culture, and the all-important vibe. So we're going to post all the show notes at tropicalmba.com slash Spain and Portugal. And I guess a little bit of a disclaimer here, nothing that we're going to say here you should take as legal advice, but we'd love to hear your perspective in the comments. And obviously, if you're planning on going and getting permanent residency, I would highly recommend that you talk to a lawyer about it. All right, so let's just jump in with my interview with Shannon Weeks. I asked him first about how he and his wife ended up settling in Portugal and why they picked Lisbon over the country's other popular destination, Porto. Well, we were in Chiang Mai for about a year and a half, and the only issue with Chiang Mai is the time zone. And so at that time, I was doing a lot of online consultations, and I was doing my shifts were like from 12 in the morning to 4 in the morning. Without the time zone issue, you might still be in Chiang Mai? My wife's family is on the East Coast and wanted to be a little bit closer. So we were just kind of looking for a better time zone, a little closer to family on the East Coast. I was familiar with Portugal. I'd heard that Porto was a beautiful city we'd never been and I just started doing some research. It looked like it was about 10% more than living in Chiang Mai. And we lived pretty well in Chiang Mai. And so we 
year before last, we went from Chiang Mai and did a three-month stint in Porto. Three months because that's how long our Schengen visa was. Because you're uh, both Americans, so you did the standard arrival 90 days. Yeah, just like a tourist visa, we got a three-month stay in Porto and just loved it. And it was incredibly inexpensive. We had the same quality of life that we had in Thailand. Porto was a lovely, beautiful city. It's very cold and rainy in the winter. Lisbon gets more sun than any city in Western Europe, I'm told. It's a little bit bigger, a little more going on. We decided when we come back, we'll go we'll settle in Lisbon. Can you describe for someone who hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about Portugal or Lisbon, like what's it like? It's a very Mediterranean sort of culture, not unlike Spain, but at the same time, quite different, very laid back. You know, they lived through a Salazar fascist regime for many, many, many decades, and they got hit hard by the economic crisis. It's almost like the Asia of Europe, you know, in Chiang Mai or in Vietnam, there's something about these cultures that they're poor, but the people are very hearty, happy, down to earth kind of vibe. In Lisbon itself, it's a beautiful city. It's undergoing a renaissance because they changed some laws. It's kind of a rundown city. They had some bad drug problems, and they changed their drug policies, changed some of the tax laws, and now there's a real. It's, it's really coming back to its old life. Very charming, big cafe life. It's, it's a little bit grungy, but still you know, has a very European feel to it. Would you describe it as a big city? No, no, no. It's the biggest city in Portugal. And it's a European capital. You know, we walk 90% of the time and then Uber and there's a great metro and trams and all that. So, no, not a big city at all. What do the locals make of people like you and your wife? Like when you tell them your story and why you're there, do they look at you uh, like an alien or do, does it make no, sense? No, the Portuguese people are very proud of Portugal. And so they always ask, you know, oh, you live in Lisbon. How do you like it? And, was, and you know, say, well, we just love it. And they're just, you know, they're tickled pink like that. And, you know, they want to tell you about their, their favorite restaurants and, oh, have you visited this part of Portugal? Have you visited this part of Portugal? So they're incredibly welcoming. We haven't run into literally zero attitude. They're just sort of, their view is, you know, they had a very hard life. It's kind of poor. It's like, well, why would you want to come here? Because many of them, especially the younger people, want to go, you know, to the States or to England or, you know, somewhere where there's work. There's almost a fascination. They get a lot of tourists and stuff. But when you say you live there, like, oh, okay, tell us about that. And you've been something of an advocate to get entrepreneurs to come hang out in the city that you love. Can you talk about the scene? Yeah. Lisbon has... Actually, a very good startup scene. There's a couple of things it has going for it locally. One is the level of English spoken is very high. They don't dub any of their entertainment, and all the kids take something like 10 years of English in their normal school, and many of them also speak French. So getting settled or just, you know, if you don't speak the language, it's really, especially in Lisbon, just zero problem. In fact, it's a little bit of a problem because we're trying to learn Portuguese, but when you start speaking to them, inevitably they, you know, they'll start speaking to English because their English is inevitably better than my Portuguese. So the crowd there is growing. In fact, I, I would say there's no less than a dozen people that we knew in Chiang Mai who now live in Lisbon. What was the drive in them as a group to change a location? Well, so for many people, you know, you're looking for the same quality of life that you have in Asia, right? So inexpensive, can live in a nice apartment, go out to eat, can do all the quality of life things that this affords us. Harder to do in Paris, London, even Barcelona, I think, to some extent, because it is so inexpensive. So to go out to a daily meal, you know, can be five or six euros for lunch. You know, if you're someone who enjoys alcohol, high level of wine for four or five dollars a bottle, that kind of thing. So it's the kind of thing where you travel, and you don't even think about how much you're spending because it's incredibly inexpensive. And so that attracts a lot of people. Very good internet. It's one of those countries that you can come in and it's, it's easy to get settled. It's easy to get your phone card. If you come in a month that's not summer where it's very busy, it's, it's relatively easy to find a place to live. 
It's easy to set up a bank account, things like that. So it's, it's easy to get settled into that. Dan, I've visited you several times in Spain now, and I'm already thinking about visiting you again this summer. It's becoming a tradition. Before Spain, you were living in the Philippines. Why did you want to move to Southern Europe? There's two different answers to the question. The first is the logic of the situation, and maybe we'll get into some of the details of what it takes to come here and why it's good for certain people. But it was really emotion that drove me to come here. In 2013, I was looking for a great place to meet up with my parents for a family vacation. A few friends, Jody Ettenberg, James Clark, we sat down with a globe and we were like, where can we do this vacation? You know, My parents only had two weeks off. We selected Spain. And it was just one of those feelings when I got here, I was like, man, I can't believe it took me so long to come to this place, particularly Barcelona. I just immediately fell in love and that hasn't really changed. In many ways, I'm still in that haze of emotion of just being enamored with the place and what it has to offer and how I personally feel here. It ended up being a strategic place for me to move for many reasons as well. It's just you have a feeling when you love a place. That's what it was for me. Why do you think you didn't land there earlier? Was it a money thing? Was it a cost thing? Is that why you hung out in Asia and then now you got a little bit more scratch and you can go to Europe? I think it was also thinking of it as a feasibility thing. We've been to Europe many times. Like we hosted an event in 2013 in Berlin. And I always just kind of thought Europe was like really nice for a vacation, hence the family vacation. I mean, we did a vacation with our folks in 2012 as well. We went to Paris and Rome and I was just like, by the way, our first like, hey, mom and dad, we made it kind of thing. <laughs> it was cool. Do you remember, by the way, how we hid money in the pillows in that apartment in Paris? I do. And I don't know if the story will make it on the show, but I remember you being like, hey, man, I got 10 grand. We had to like even out something with the business. And like, so you had to give me five of it, you know, and that was part of my salary for the year. And we like took it in cash and then we had to walk around Europe for three weeks with $10,000. This really gangster way. It was like this huge thing for us because, you know, $10,000 is a crap ton of money. I don't care who you're talking to. That's a lot of money. So you told me about this like a month in advance. And I was like, oh my God, Ian's going to be like this Sherpa guy, like this gangster. He's coming with a roll. This is how I'm going to get paid. This is how we do our business. And you pulled out the 10 grand and it was like the most pathetic stack of bills I've ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> it was so disappointing. I mean, when you open up a suitcase of money in the movies, that's some serious coin in there. You can fit a lot of money. <laughs> By the way, there's nothing illegal going on here. It just sounded cool to be able to hide money in the pillowcase. I could have very well just transferred the money via a wire bank transfer, but we decided for some reason to bring cash to Europe. <laughs> so you just didn't see it as feasible because of the visa situation? Or why did it not seem feasible to you to live there? It didn't seem like a good value, first off, particularly hanging out in Paris. You know, Rome is like a bit parochial. Like it was really Barcelona that changed my perspective of Europe as a whole. You know, it was youthful. It was frenetic. It was energetic. You know, Barcelona is the third densest city in Europe. And it has a lot of that energy that I love so much about Asia. I guess I had an idea that Europe was like a little bit sleepy, a little bit older, a little bit slow. Nice for a couple of weeks, but not great to live. I know it might sound like culturally naive to say things like this, but there's kind of a thread of things that have in common between all the places that I really loved. And when I look back at like Bali, when I look back at San Diego, when I looked at my college days to Montreal, these are places that have a string of similarities. And this is to my taste, which is that 
there's a density of culture, San Diego being the lightest. And that was always a problem, I think, a little bit for both of us when we were there. We talked about that a lot. There's a density of culture, of life, of energy, of things to do in a very small space. And then there's very easy access to nature in the countryside. And they're also like really well-designed places in terms of lifestyle. All those places are very different from a cultural perspective, but it's that basic infrastructure that they all share and that really attracted me to all of those places. That makes sense. And Barcelona is just like that quintessential city of like, I literally can walk to like 200 restaurants within five minutes. That's no hyperbole. I would love to do the actual math. It's, it's so insanely dense in terms of things to do. But in 15 minutes, I'm in like a national park and deserted roads on my bike. What's interesting about the statement is that you can't experience or understand that until I think you're in the city for several weeks. Like it's not something that you can go to Wikipedia or just like punch into the internet and have a list of different places pop up, you know? It's almost like you have to design your criteria and then you have to visit these places and understand if they operate under that assumption. A lot of people say, well, are you just in a space in your life where you're ready to be committed now? You know, what happened to all the traveling or this and that? I go back and forth. Is it me that's changed or is it just that I found a place that fits my criteria better? And I don't know. The answer remains to be seen. So what factors are important for you in Barcelona? Is the time zone good? Is it a great place, it seems like, for your family to visit because they've been out there several times? First off, there are a handful of countries that if you come from, former colonies of Spain, that if you have a passport from, say, the Philippines, you can get citizenship here in Spain in two years. That is extremely appealing. One thing that gets brought up, you'll see a lot in this series, Ian, of these interviews that we've done, is time zone's a really big factor. What ended up happening with me living in Asia and us collaborating more on the phone is that I found myself up till midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., three or four nights a week. That is not a long-term lifestyle for me. You know, If I'm going to get out of bed at 8 a.m., and then start working and do my day and then think to myself, yeah, I'm going to be on the phone tonight till 2 a.m. It's like a pretty horrible lifestyle. And for me, I was in a good position, but a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they depend on those calls to grow and build their businesses. And for me, it felt it's a lot more natural to be in a European time zone where, you know, you can have days where you call Asia, you can have days where you call the U.S. So it's, it's really convenient for that. I got to interject on that point because I think a lot of that has to do with the financial position that you're in right now. You know, you sold your business in 2015. It's like you didn't much mind waking up at eight and going to bed at two when, you know, you're building that business and getting it off the ground and it was really exciting. So I got to imagine some of this just has to do with how much money's in your pocket and the fact that you're 35 years old now. I don't know if that's the way it really happened. Part of the reason that I think so many entrepreneurs avoid the idea of moving to Europe is you can't really do it that casually, right? You have to get residence, which if you're just starting a new business, will get in the way, potentially that process. And that's the reality if you want to come here for longer than three months as an American. Basically, a lot of people, I think, in the community are like kind of floating around. So it's like, well, you know, I'll like go to Europe during the best months in the summer. And then after that, I'll go to Asia when it gets cold. Not so big of a deal. But what you found in your life is that you want to be there full time. And so you had to figure out a way to do that. Speaking of me changes, it became a massive deal once I committed to a long-term relationship. And the reason is, is that I felt like all we were doing as a couple was like navigating logistical issues with that next three-month hop. 
even me and you have gotten into arguments about it. Like, you know, I just had so much on the line of like where I was going to be and like where I was going to be living and how many plane tickets were going to get me there and what the visa terms were that it just became too big a part of my life. You know, I didn't want to be 35 and spending 25% of my creative energy managing my travel arrangements, my living arrangements. Yeah, I don't think people that don't do this a lot understand that that's a real thing. And that's kind of the first time I've heard somebody explain it like that. But it is definitely 25% of your waking hours figuring out how you're going to get to the next country, what your accommodations are going to look like, how to get a visa, how to stay there as long as you want to stay there. I mean, it is a part-time job trying to figure all that information out. Yeah, and you get benefits from the refinements you create if you stay in one place for a long period of time. I mean, I've been working on those and where I'm at right now over the course of the year, and I become more efficient, more productive. And if you're moving around all the time, you get other sorts of benefits for sure. But you can spend a lot of time making those arrangements like, oh, man, the internet goes out every two weeks. Who am I going to talk to about this? You know, There's so much to say about that. And I think there's trade-offs to everything. But as a couple... I think we were really inspired to say like, look, we need a base that from a passport, a visa, a business and a lifestyle perspective can always be somewhere where we can go and just be in orbit, so to speak, where we can focus on bigger order issues than our Airbnb, the lack of internet. Are we going to use miles for this flight or not? Does this work for you? Does it work for me? I know there's probably a lot of more mature people listening to this and laughing right now because it's like, haha, Dan has grown up. And it's true. Like when you're single and you're young, those decisions, you don't have to run them by anybody. You know, you don't have to say, like, is this okay for my family? Is this okay for my employees? Is this okay for my partner? But when you have all those things, you have to start asking those questions. And after a while, you want to stop asking those questions and just start being in a relationship or start being a boss, as opposed to, is this going to be okay for everybody that I do all this stuff, you know? All right. So of course, things opened up in this episode with talking about sort of the reasons and the emotions that drove us to be attracted to these places But I think it's worth spending a little bit of time to talk about the practicalities of how both Spain and Portugal can be sympathetic places for people with foreign passports and online businesses. It's a challenge to get a residency in a lot of countries in Europe. You know, even if you qualify, it's still a little bit challenging. Portugal kind of opened its arms because of the economic crisis. And they're like, okay, how can we get foreigners to come and spend money here? And they took that attitude. Can you walk us Uh, through the process? What did they ask of you? Very easy. Now, everyone has a different experience. I can tell you my experience. When I was in Porto, I contacted, I emailed the consulate in Washington, D.C. and said, hey, we're here in Porto. We love Portugal. We'd like to come back to the state. What's required? And so here's what they sent me. You need a background check from, in my case, the FBI, if you're Australian, whatever that equivalent is. You need proof of insurance that will cover you in Portugal, which most insurance does. You write a letter saying why you want to come to Portugal. And for us, it was just literally writing, we like Portugal. We want to learn the language. We have online businesses. Just the truth. If you're married, you have a marriage certificate and proof of income. How do you prove your income to a government? Just send in my bank statements. Now, the average Portuguese person makes about 1,000 euros a month. So if you're making more than that, they didn't really question it. We just sent them our bank accounts and say, Here, here's so, what we have. So you didn't have a lawyer or anything. You just sent all this stuff directly to the government. And how did they respond to you? No lawyer. We went directly to the consulate in Washington, D.C. What took the longest was the background check from the FBI. They tell us that takes 12 to 16 weeks, and that was exactly the case. When we were in Portugal, we 
actually got the fingerprinting done at the U.S. Embassy in Lisbon. And when I came back to the States, my parents live in Washington, D.C. Four months later, that background check was done. And so we went right to the consulate with the background check, a written statement, our bank accounts, and a proof of insurance, handed it into them. And their policy is when you hand in that paperwork, they have 30 days to respond, yes or no. And 30 days later, they can say, okay, you've been approved. We went there. They give you a temporary visa, which is a four-month visa, and they give you a number to call. And so they say, okay, when you get to Lisbon, you have to call this number. You've been approved. We get to Lisbon. We call the number, and that's the local immigration office, the CEF. You make an appointment. The appointments are usually four to six months away, okay, because it's government bureaucracy. So <laughs> in our case, it was like, wait a minute. Our appointment is after our visa expires. And they told us, you know what? As long as you have this appointment, you're fine. I wouldn't leave the country during that time. I know some people have and they haven't had a problem. And I know some people have and they, they got a bit of a problem. But if you have the appointment and you overstay your visa, you're, you're fine. So then we went to the CEF office. We presented all the same paperwork. Eight months and later. In our case, it was four months later. The latest I heard, I had a friend who just said, you know, I called and they said it was going to be seven months. <laughs> so a little tip, if you are in Lisbon and you want to do this, actually, there's some different offices. So there's an office in Kashkaish, which is about 30 minutes away. It's probably less busy. Porto office. I mean, if you can roam around in Lisbon, of course, it's the capital. It's the busiest. We went. We presented that paperwork. We paid something like 140 euros. And then about two weeks later, we get a card in the mail. That's your residency card. And so now that you're a resident, you can travel freely throughout Europe. That card is good for a year. And then a year later, when I go back in January, I'll, make, I'll call and make another appointment to renew it. And then when you renew it, it's good for two years after that. And I think it's two-year sessions after that. And I think after six, you can apply for permanent residency. Are they going to ask you to pay taxes for that? or A bonus about living in Portugal. Portugal has what they call a non-habitual tax residency. And this is something that came up with a few years ago to encourage foreign investment into Portugal. You have to apply the first year you're there. So you apply for this status as a non-habitual tax residency, which means if you stay in the country six months out of the year, it doesn't have to be consecutive, then you qualify for this. Now, if you choose to live in Portugal and don't apply for this, after you've been there, they will consider you a tax resident and you will be obligated to pay their taxes, which inevitably are higher than wherever you are. <laughs> so you should apply for this if you plan to stay there because the non-habitual tax residency if you're a foreigner and you have income, certain types of income are taxed at 0%. So dividends, interest, capital gains, royalties, rental income, things like this. If you earn this money, pensions. So a lot of you know wealthy pensioners who have big pensions, say from France or Germany, will move to Portugal because it's not a habitual tax residency and pay 0% tax on that. Any money that is made while you're in Portugal, so let's say you set up a business and you pay yourself, that's a flat tax of 20% no matter how much you make. So we have just applied for this. This you do need a lawyer and they apply for you. You know, you have to actually talk to a lawyer because there's certain you know, intricacies to it. But now that we have this non-habitual tax residency, the other benefit that that gives us as an American, you know that in order to qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion, if you live outside of the U.S. 330 days out of the year, you are not required to pay taxes on the first $100,000. That's great, but you're only limited to 30 days in the States. Now that we have this residency, we can come and go as we please. So if I want to come spend three months in the States, I don't have to worry about that. I, don't, I, I won't be obligated to all of a sudden have to pay U.S. taxes as well. So uh, you're so, a Portugal tax resident at that point. Portugal tax residency, right. 
you end up paying very little taxes, far less than the States. And now I'm free to move back and forth to the U.S. as often as I want and anywhere in, in Europe without having to worry about the visa situation. Okay. So your girlfriend is not Spanish. You are not Spanish. How do you guys stay in Spain? Right. Well, there's a bunch of different ways. Spain has long had programs that allow people to come. And you know, a lot of Asian countries, for example, are famous for, you can buy a condo, but you can't buy a house. You know, you'll never be part of this culture. U.S. is famous for ensuring that people remain there for like many years on end, a large percentage of the year for, you know, in some cases up to a decade in order to, you know, officially become a part of the country. In Spain, things are a lot easier. If you got some money, a lot of money, you can come and just buy something and that'll put you in a process where you can become a resident of Spain. They have a new program for entrepreneurs called the Entrepreneur Visa that I was made aware of by an article in the New York Times, in fact. And that's how I got my residency. Basically, no cash up front, just a track record. This podcast helped, actually. They did review what we were up to. And a business plan, a plan to bring economic activity here to Spain. There's a bunch of different ways. You can also get a job here in Spain. You can establish yourself as an autonomous business unit here in Spain. So if you're looking for ways to come to Spain and you're willing to commit, and you know that's going to involve taxes and being on the books and you know doing business here in Spain, if you're willing to do those things, it's not the toughest nut to crack, but it's a commitment. So what's your advice? Is it to show up to Spain and speak with a lawyer on your first day? Do you wait 60 days, 90 days until you've been there, speak with a lawyer? I mean, I'm coming to Spain. I know I want to live there because I've been there several times on vacation. What should I do? I would meet with a minimum of three lawyers. Ideally, they would have different sort of backgrounds and styles. Like, you can go to like the nice firm with the big cool office with the big windows. I would recommend going to like an individual gunslinger type lawyer. Just go to three different offices, talk to three different perspectives, let them know what your situation is and see what kind of solutions they put in front of you. I think you're going to be surprised at the ease of some of them. The other thing is that legal services are surprisingly affordable here in Spain. And so you're not going to break the bank by having those meetings. And some of them might even be free. What is Spain's stance on you being there? How do they feel about you? It's a different feeling that I've experienced in Asian countries that I've lived. And I'll talk about it like this. Like when I started thinking in years instead of months, I think with our business, like I've always been a little bit more long-term thinking than I have been personally. You know, personally, I'm just like, yeah, I'll figure it out. You know, no big deal. I'll just move to another place. But personally, I started to think more long-term. And part of the challenge of being in Asia is I was always concerned about the existential rug being pulled out from underneath me. There's always that kind of question mark about your status. This is what people say to me about like buying a home in the United States. Like, oh, don't you feel so much better? Like you can never get pushed out of your crappy apartment. I'm like, I was never kicked out of an apartment, but (laughs) is it something that's real or is it something that isn't real in Asia? It's real. There are people, let's use Thailand as an example. I've met expats that are well-established, very successful and wealthy that have been living in Thailand for a decade. And They have serious questions about their future status in that country. And it's not because they don't like it anymore. It's because of the legal question. And there's always kind of an asterisk after their status that says foreigner. That's not quite the case 
in Spain, which is a little closer culturally and legally, ways that you can understand. I can imagine myself more or less becoming integrated in the culture here, both from a, a legal and a cultural perspective. Those things are always going to be a question mark in many Asian countries. And that question mark might just be fine. You go back to that wealthy person who's been there for 10 years and you say, look, given your resources and your agility, what do you think the chances are you'll be able to remain here for 10 more years? They would probably say, yeah, yeah, you know, pretty high. But if you have a lot of assets, if you have children coming, if you're building a family, if you want to make investments, if you want to do things that are in 10 and 20 year timeframes, I think not having that asterisk next to your name is a really big benefit. And having access to a full range of medical services and legal rights, I think, is a really big benefit, if not the reason for making a decision like this. I think it's interesting to ask yourself, too, if you're making a long-term decision, you know, like I wouldn't make a decision about residency for just a year or two. You know, I'm definitely thinking like five, 10 years down the road. And if you're going to make an investment like that, I think it's cool to step back and ask yourself like where your values are and where you want to be aligned for 10 years. Like how does a place rub off on you? You know, if you're in X location, what are the ancillary benefits of being there? Like what are the ways in which that's going to direct your life that it doesn't depend on like you actively doing anything or your willpower? It's just being there will have an effect on the trajectory of your life. And that's kind of an interesting opportunity to say, you know, where do I want to be aligned? You know, you could have a lot of negative critiques about Spain, too. You know, it's not exactly the most humming economy on the planet. So I might end up in terms of money. You know, who knows if you move to a place like Singapore or something that might rub off on you in a positive way that way. You might become a starving artist or something like that. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, I've been headed that direction for years. <laughs> <laughs> so downsides, though. So yes, Spain is in a time of, I wouldn't call it economic crisis, but things definitely aren't going the best there. Yeah. In terms of unemployment, I think it's like well into the double digits. So what are some of the downsides? Well, like I said at the top, I am blind to them because I'm utterly in love. For me, this is the greatest place I've ever been. But you could say, well, for you, every place you've ever been is the greatest place. And that's fair, too. I haven't interacted so much with the local business culture, and that will be one of my responsibilities going forward in order to maintain residency here. Now, how much I interact with that culture remains to be seen, but my guess is I could potentially attempt to limit it because it does seem like Europe's like living in many ways on the fat of the past. And when you walk into like, a legal setting here or a business setting, it's not really the place things feel like they're happening. It all feels like a little bit secondary or derivative. And a lot of the, you know, we've done events here, for example, and it's just kind of like if the bell at 5 p.m. goes off, like the laptops get slammed shut. Do you remember that time we tried to rent a bike here? That was the story that I was going to bring up, which is like, the guy's like, hey, look, you know, we're closed today because we got to run inventory. And like, there's no way that I could possibly rent you a bike. Like, of course, we're all here. Of course, we're all working. But like, I cannot open that register and ring you out a bike because we're doing inventory quite simply. Yes. In the US, it would just be a matter of like, well, do I want to make 80 bucks or do I not want to make 80 bucks? And I think at the time, actually, it was like, I was trying to start a relationship that would have been like $1,000 because I wanted to rent the bike for the whole month. And he understood that and just quite simply couldn't do it. That can be great, you know, to have that feeling of like life over stress, basically. Essentially, it was what he was saying, which is like, look, like, I just want to live. I want to exist. Like, I don't want to be stressed out. 
And the burden of your $1,000 would be too much of a stress to me. So as an operator and from his position, I wish I could live my life a little bit more like that. But from a consumer standpoint and from your standpoint where you're actually trying to get something done, it can almost be infuriating sometimes. It can be. And now everything cuts two ways because if you look at the seriousness with which this man takes his weekend family picnics or the way that Spanish people treat family time or holidays, it's with a seriousness that you would admire. And it's real. It's it's a great place to live in that respect. But yeah, I mean, people aren't going out of their ways to see around corners in terms of business or service here. Now, I will say that if you look at this increasing globalizing world, Barcelona is the most cosmopolitan city in Southern Europe. The weather here is more or less like Southern California weather. It's fabulous year-round. This place is a magnet for people from all around the world and all around Europe where people can move freely. So there's lots of people from Northern Europe, from Eastern Europe, coming to Barcelona to make a life and to do business. There's a lot of different attitudes. There's a lot of people you can meet and different things you can get into. So... You're not limited to that attitude by every lawyer you meet, for example, or every bike rental shop that you go to. But that definitely is an attitude that you'll encounter a lot. And, you know, it does make me thinking, like, if I was living in Spain, say, and, like, an investor came to me and said, hey, Dan, you know, I love what you guys are doing. I want to give you $2 million to do this. Would I, you know, capitalize a company in Spain and, like, execute from Spain? The jury's out for me. And that's just because you feel like there's going to be too much headache or you feel like it's not the best place to do business? At a high level, I have some real questions yeah, as to whether or not it might not be better just to do it from a Delaware C-Corp and deal with American service providers. I don't know. It's all speculation at this point. These aren't games that I'm playing. You know, I moved to Spain to develop a long-term lifestyle. You know, I work on the internet and so I don't need, it's not a big concern to me really what the local business culture is here you know we we've even had a saying on this show like thou shalt not do local business yeah it's tempting it's there i think the opportunity for me exists on the internet so it's not a huge concern to me and i just want to point this out because this is a problem in the process as far as i understand it you know you move to spain you're trying to figure out a way to live there full time one of the ways that you can live there full time is by incorporating a company and of course, like the kind of company that you would like to incorporate may be in Spain because that's where you want to live and that's the rule. But ultimately, it would be an internet-based company, I'm sure, and it would have customers all over the world. And these governments, they still don't seem to understand that, right? So here's an American moving to Spain. I want to start an internet-based company. I want to have no employees or probably do zero business in Spain, right? And the government just hasn't caught up to that yet, have they? Well, let me cut you off of the past. I mean, the visa that I'm on currently, or the res, it's not a visa, so which is interesting because I don't have to be here to maintain it. It's developed expressly for that purpose. The government has recognized that we exist and has said, look, we want you to do all that you're doing, but we want you to do it here, and we'll give you residency in return. Now, how much of your total activity you do in Spain, I think, is ultimately up to you, and will ultimately have to do with how competitive the Spanish government is with their policies. So that's what remains to be seen. But the fact that Spain is willing to create innovative policies for entrepreneurs, they've definitely been a leader there. And this entrepreneur visa is a prime example of that. So that was just a little taste of the opportunities and possibilities for entrepreneurs who want to live in Southern Europe. And a big shout to Shannon Weeks, 
for sharing his perspective on this week's show. And this is just the first of a few that we'll be sharing in a little mini series that we're doing on countries in Europe that might be interesting for those who run online businesses to call home. I really enjoyed doing this. You know, I thought it's really specific. I get it. But to me, what's really interesting about these shows is like looking into the motivations that different entrepreneurs have and what drives them to do what they do. And that's what I found through doing this series. So I'd love to hear about what you're up to. If you got any questions or your perspective on this stuff, show notes and comments will be at tropicalmba.com slash Spain and Portugal. And of course, we'll be back next Thursday morning. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.